Hello and welcome to the Violinist podcast. Today our guest is outstanding Norwegian violinist, professor of the Norwegian Academy of Music and concertmaster of the Norwegian Radio Orchestra, former section leader of the second violins in the Chamber Orchestra of Europe, Kolbjorn Holte. Hello, Kolbjorn. Hello, Maxim. Very nice to be invited to your podcast. It's also very nice to see you and talk with you here. You are also conductor, right? Yes, uh, yes, I am. I I don't do very much, but I've been conducting a little bit the last ten uh, years or so. Yes. Uh, all right, and then first of the question is actually what what my wife said. Uh, how how do you combine all this teaching, playing, and conducting? Is it hard for you? Uh, no, it's not hard to combine it because I find that it's it's uh, all uh, related to the same thing. Um, uh, but of course, the uh, the amount is sometimes a little different, difficult because. Uh, um, you know uh, very often uh, the the workload is not always organized the way you would like it to be so sometimes maybe there are quiet periods and other times everything happens at the same time so that that can be challenging to to be able to prepare everything you want to be in top shape uh, if it's a lot going on at the same time but i find that um, I find that all those three elements of work they they are very fruitful towards each other and um, and I find it all it all has to do with uh, music and it has to do with uh, doing music with people um, and I find that teaching is very very interesting for my own playing and I suppose my own playing is also obviously quite interesting for my teaching and I find that the conducting is more of a um, um, it, it's a little bit of a combination of both I find because uh, the way I conduct is all has always been very um, related to um, to um, my experiences from playing in the orchestra um, and I think when I'm conducting I also I also benefit a lot from having and almost 20 years of uh, of teaching students because of course when you are with colleagues in an orchestra you are not teaching them as such but but you have to have a way of explaining sometimes um what you are trying to achieve and i think uh, and teaching students is a very good training for that so so i find that all those three i i i don't know if i really um uh, I don't think I'm so aware of uh, of the different uh, jobs I'm doing. Actually, I don't think. Well, now I'm an orchestra musician, or now I'm a conductor, or now I'm a teacher. I find that it's all the same. Mm. But if, for example, I remember we played a concert with you where you were one part conducting and another part playing. Is it hard to change quickly from violin to conducting? Uh, no, I would rather say the other way around because uh, uh, mentally and musically, I don't find uh, um, leading from the concertmaster stand or conducting. I don't find them to be very different at all. 
um, but uh, uh, physiologically, I find that if you are conducting something uh, that requires quite a lot of energy, and then maybe after a short intermission or something, you are going to play the violin and you have to play something very delicate, then I find that can be a little bit of a problem. And I've, I've spoken to other um, concert masters slash conductors that have the same experience that um, um, it can be challenging. The other way is no problem. If you, if you play the violin in the first half and conduct in the second, that's no problem. But the other way around, is, mm. it can be a little bit challenging. Mm-hmm. Okay. But otherwise, it uh, helps you, right, conducting? Yes, it does. Yeah. Well, maybe you have very bright career when I was reading your biography. Maybe you can tell a little bit about yourself. Yes, yes, I can. Um, well, I started playing the violin when I was seven because I came from a, a family where um, uh, nobody were musicians as such, but they were very interested in music. My mother was an amateur pianist and, uh, and singer. And uh, my father, he, uh, he was a, a contestant in some, um, there was, a, there was a, a Nordic competition in music guessing uh, back mm. in the um, 60s, 70s. It was called uh, Counterpoint, Kontrapunkt. Mm. And I think um, uh, there were, were all the Nordic countries, I think at least Denmark, Sweden, Finland, Norway, I think. Maybe it started off with only Norway, Sweden, uh, Denmark, and then eventually later it was expanded also Iceland, I think. Um, and my father was uh, at that time, this was just before I was born, he was a little bit of a celebrity in uh, Norway because of course back then we only had one TV channel, so everybody was watching this show and he was very, very good at uh, So his knowledge of a uh, uh, musical repertoire was uh, unbelievable actually. Mm. Um, so that was my background. And then of course I started playing the violin and, uh, and uh, moving up uh, to, to, to better and better teachers as I, as I developed. Um, and uh, I must say that uh, for me, of course, when I was, when I was young, I mean, sort of early teenager, I had this dream that probably almost every uh, violin player has that, uh, you know, you, you want to be like the big soloists, like uh, at that time, you know, people like Itzhak Perlman and those. Um, so, so I had this dream of becoming a soloist, but I don't know. Um, um, I think probably my personality was a little bit, uh, in, wasn't made to be that kind of, um, you know, if you want to become a big virtuoso, you have to have this unbelievable focus and dedication. Uh, and it almost, I think at least for, for some years, I think it almost has to be a little bit manic, you know, because otherwise it's hard to get there. And I think my personality was a little bit more divided. Uh, I had more interest and I was also very much in love with playing um Uh, in orchestras um so so my career didn't go that way in the end um, um but it went more towards the orchestral field because i love the repertoire and i love um working with nice colleagues and um and i also found that that was 
uh, where maybe my musical understanding was um, more appreciated in a way. So um, I I um, I was very eager playing in uh, you know orchestra courses when I was uh, younger and uh, and also we had a chamber orchestra in at the academy in Oslo because of course I studied in the same school as I uh, as I now teach um, <clears throat> and we had a chamber orchestra that was run in a very nice way it was uh, in those most important years for me it was led by the famous viola player Lars Anders Tomtir <laughs> and um, uh, he had this philosophy that uh, all the violinists and and even also in the other groups we should alternate so everybody got a lot of experience uh, leading and also being part of the section and for me, that was a great way of being trained to become a section leader and a concertmaster, which is ma mainly what I've been doing in my uh, professional life. <clears throat> and then um, as an exchange student, I had two years in uh, the US with Professor Camilla Wicks. Um, I have to mention that because she was probably the most influential teacher for me. She was an amazing violinist in her early days, and uh, and she was just the most amazing teacher. Uh, she just recently passed away, actually. So, but she she became a very old lady. Um, and then there is another thing I must mention, and that was once when I was um, a teenager, uh, I was uh, sick at home. I had the flu, so I was in had a fever, and I was in bed. And then my dad, he came up with, uh, you know, one of those old fashioned uh, um, cassette players. And he said, listen to this orchestra. This is something I taped from the radio. And I think it's amazing playing. And it was um, a uh, um, Rossini opera that was uh, rediscovered. It had been forgotten for a long time. It was called uh, Il Vaggio Il Reims, I think. Okay. Um, Oh, and that was the Chamber Orchestra of Europe playing with uh, Claudio Abado. And I, I, the sound of that orchestra just did something to me because it was it was an articulation and a clarity that I I thought I'd never heard in my life before. And I think from that moment there was a little dream in my belly that uh, maybe someday I could play in that orchestra. So. And many years later, uh, I got the opportunity to, to audition for them and I actually got the job. So for 12 years, I was, um, I was a member of that orchestra and most of those years I was uh, leading the second violins. Um, and I got to play with amazing conductors such uh, like Abadu and Niklas Anonkur and Pavel Berglund was there a lot. He was fantastic. And uh, a lot of other people too, Rostislav Svensky, uh, uh, Giulini, even um, uh, Bernard Haitink a lot. So, so that was that was for me maybe the the most intense and uh, most developing um, uh, period of my uh, career. I also had a, uh, was concertmaster for five years in the Norwegian Opera. That was just after I uh, finished my studies, and. Um, I was artistic director of the, the Tromsø Chamber Orchestra. They actually have a very, very good chamber orchestra in the 
very north of Norway, which is interesting. And uh, and um, then of course uh, now uh, uh, I have this concertmaster job in the in the radio orchestra, which is also great because we play a lot of different kinds of music and um, uh, we do a lot of fun thing, things because we we have of course the broadcasting company with the TV and everything, so we can we can do a lot of fun things. And that's actually where I started conducting a little bit because I had to take over a rehearsal. Well, no, actually, I did a little bit of conducting in Tromsø as well. Mm. But then uh, uh, I I did a concert in Tromsø where I conducted the Beethoven Seventh Symphony, and then a few weeks later I was a, a concertmaster with the radio orchestra, and we were doing that symphony. And then the the conductor had to go away to a funeral for one day, and I said mm. that if, if I can help, I can I can conduct it for a, for a day. And after that, he engaged me to to do a proper project on my own later. And then, uh, since then, I've been almost conducting them every year. And then I went to this um, um, conducting masterclass in uh, northern Finland in Levi with uh, mm-hmm. Professor Ari Rasilainen. And that's yeah. how I got to know the the Laparanta Symphony uh, City Orchestra. And. Uh, uh, they also were very nice and invited me to come and play first as a soloist and then uh, leading from the concertmaster stand and also conducting. And uh, I miss them a lot because uh, because of the corona, we haven't been able to work. So, so that's pretty much what I've been doing. So it's it's very my career has been very orchestra heavy, but uh, but uh, I really like that. Hmm. Yeah, it was a very nice project. Uh, I remember we played with you. Yes, and uh, how do you think uh, you you already teaching like twenty years in uh, academy in Norwegian Academy of Music, and you also played as you said in this chamber orchestra of Europe. And uh, how do you think how does uh, Norwegian violin school differs from others? Is there any sp- special? Um, that that's quite an interesting uh, interesting question, actually, because I did find uh, when I started playing in the in the chamber orchestra of Europe, of course, uh, there I met a lot of uh, different nationalities because there are people from all over the world, almost there. Um, but of course, the main uh, influence was from the German and uh, British uh, people. They were um, um, uh, the highest number of, of members. Um, so uh, you can say that as a Norwegian, I met something like what you could call a, a more uh, continental European tradition. Um, and there were some differences, I must say, um, because um, I think uh, if I were to describe the the Norwegian tradition of playing, although of course there are different variations there too, um, it's quite um, it's quite intense, and and um, and um, I think very often for or, uh, Norwegian mus- musicians and in 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 particularly in, in orchestras, um, it has been at least earlier. Uh, uh, um, um, an urge, I think, to have this feeling that when the concert is over, you really gave everything. 
and you want to have this feeling that it it sort of took off, you know. Um, and I think um, that urge sometimes showed in um, in a little bit of a um, tendency to uh, want to make the most out of every opportunity to to play loud. <laughs> mm, okay. Uh, I mean, this is this is not entirely true, of course, because there are amazing uh, cultivated musicians in Norway. But but this is just a very 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 general uh, thing. And I found when I came to the Chamber Orchestra of Europe and met uh, the more uh, continental uh, way of playing at that time, I felt that um, um, the the restraint sometimes. Um, you know, the, particularly the difference between forte and fortissimo uh, was much more in focus. So instead of uh, uh, using every opportunity to sort of play my heart out and give everything, you know, sometimes you would uh, hold back a little bit and play a, a rich, sensible forte, but then when the fortissimo come, it would explode. Mm. Um, and that kind of discipline uh, was a little bit um, new for me, I must say. Um, uh, another thing is that uh, I think um, what I was used to was uh, was also relating to tempo and pulse a little bit. Um, that one, th there was an ideal I found in my upbringing that the then the pulse should be very stable um, uh, and particularly rushing was was not welcome at all hmm. and what i found in uh, in uh, when i came to the chamber of europe was that uh, tempo was more flexible <laughs> also going forwards because mm -hmm. um, i found that to, to make a nice ritardando and a little magic sort of transition to uh, to the next bar and so on. Um, that is something that every musician all over the world loves to do, I think, and that comes very natural. But to actually sometimes really go forward and, and equally uh, be enthusiastic about uh, reaching somewhere, that I found was also a little bit of a difference. So, so yes, there were some slight slight traditions uh, that were different but uh, but uh, in general i think the the orchestral playing that i've been taught through those years with the student chamber orchestra um, and also um, there is something called the the youth symphony orchestra um, uh, which was an orchestral course every first half of august every year and i used to go to it from i was 12 until I was, uh, uh, well, I think almost until I was uh, starting to work professionally. That orchestra too was a very, very good um, preparation for, for the professional life. So when I got to this amazing chamber orchestra of Europe, I felt that I could use everything I had, but I just had to develop a little bit further to, to, to feel that I could catch up with the other people there. Hmm. Yes, and uh, if we are talking um, about uh, culture in Norway, I have been in Norway many times and I was pretty impressed uh, how it develops. For example, we were talking in uh, our podcast with Arvo Label, uh, 
about Estonia, where um, country cares very much about culture and increasing spending on it every year instead of cutting like in it happens nowadays, unfortunately, in many countries. And uh, like in Norway, it's also like many halls built, many orchestras expanded and the quality be becoming better every every year. How, how do you think why it's happening and why it's so important for Norway? Uh, the problem is, uh, Maxim, that uh, somehow I, I I agree with what you're saying because uh, particularly when it comes to these uh, new halls that have been built, that has been amazing. Uh, and also the orchestras are in good shape. But I I I would... I wouldn't uh, sort of feel um, at home in the description that Norway is a very sort of classical music friendly uh, oh. uh, country. Maybe it looks like that for, for for some people coming from other places, but but I I find that um, we are under the same pressure as uh, as every everybody else actually. But you know, obviously Nor Norway is a very rich country because of the oil mm. uh, and and that makes maybe some of those drastic dramatic cuts uh, mm. they haven't quite had to happen yet in Norway so I think maybe we we have this cushion that that is a little bit comfortable that um, it's not so dramatic yet um, but I I've, I must say I fear a little bit for the future because I don't I don't know exactly where, I don't feel I can see where the classical uh, music life is moving. Um, but of course, for the time being, it's a privilege that we feel that the big orchestras are safe. And I feel that my orchestra, the radio orchestra, is also safe because um, our advantage is that we are doing uh, very many different projects. We are, of course, we are playing our classical concerts, but we are also doing lots of other things and and sort of uh, TV shows. Uh, we had, for instance, we had one very popular TV show where we we traveled with the whole orchestra to small places around the country, and when we got there, we stayed there for maybe three four days, and we made one big uh, television produced concert and the soloists were all people from that place and they weren't necessarily uh, professional musicians it could be for instance the the amateur tuba player who was 90 years old and had been playing in the same uh, amateur band at the place uh, for the last 60 years you know um and also young people who could could play something and and uh, and and this this way of um, involving our orchestra with the people at the place um, was incredibly popular. And also, we would in the days we were there, we would sit. I remember once I was filmed. I I I went onto a normal bus. Uh, and the driver didn't know. Actually, he was quite upset about it. That's another story. But, but <laughs> so I, I was sitting there playing for people in the bus, you know. And so, so those kind of things we do, and we don't do it just because we want to 
save ourselves. We we do it because uh, um, we we like doing it, and we see that people love that aspect of of the 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 way we work, and and I think that makes our orchestra sort of loved a little bit by the whole the the whole population of Norway. Not only the people who are interested in Mozart and Brahms, but also everybody else. So I think in that respect, we are also quite safe. But um, uh, I I don't know. I, I really don't know because um, the the way the fashion is is changing. You know, it's it's more and more towards um, money and and reality TV. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so so we have the exact same the same progression of things as as um, uh, every other country. I think it's just that we haven't we haven't. We as musicians haven't been able to feel it as a as a threat so hmm. close to us yet, as for instance in in uh, Holland or or the UK or yeah Denmark. Yes, but uh, I remind myself uh, all the time that uh, many people saying that kind of classical music goes out of fashion but i remind myself that uh, during my uh, years of work in finland uh, the most exciting were for me actually schools concerts because kids actually loved it very much and got very much excited so i think it's not true and uh, classical music has a future yeah but I think it's very important exactly what you're saying that that uh, the way uh, the the different channels that we can find to actually use it and and um, and uh, and uh, uh, give it to people in a kind of environment where they are able to receive it. I think that is absolutely crucial for this um, uh, survival of the classical music because if we limit ourselves only to playing big symphonic repertoires in big halls, although I must say I personally absolutely love that 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 is what my life has been about. Mm-hmm. But I can easily see that if we just do that, then then we are in danger. Because um, that that audience is not going to renew itself and over and over again unless we unless we do things to make that happen. So so I think our our job as a sort of a cultural uh, guerrillas uh, <laughs> soldiers is more important than ever. I think. Yes. Uh, we we have talked also about. Uh in this podcast about uh, problems for classical musicians and for example Clyde Sahachi were telling that still even before this coronavirus crisis it was not great for classical musicians but uh, maybe we can we can find some practical advices what do you think for musicians how to prosper <laughs> in the corona times you mean yes or, yes uh, and in general too yeah yes it's a it's a big uh, question and it's it probably got lots of complicated answers as well but uh, uh well maybe we have uh, maybe we have already touched it a little bit by by this um musical guerrilla uh, soldiers because i think 
um, uh, being a classical musician today, um, of course, you still have orchestras. You still have the possibility to to um, if you win an audition, you can you can get a quite safe job. Uh, I'm saying quite safe because I know that some people have had horrible times when orchestras have been shut down and but but um, it, it, relatively speaking it it can be one of the more safe situations you can be in as a classical musician so that's one thing that th those musicians are most of the times quite fine or quite okay but i think for other people uh, being what they call a musical entrepreneur is much more important now maybe than it has ever been because um it seems like people who are creative um in the way of thinking how to how to actually make a, a scene for themselves um a way of reaching out a, a way of making themselves important in the cultural life that ability i i think seems to be almost as important now as uh, just being a good enough instrumentalist so not the, so that the people who are who are um, uh, creative initiating um, concerts for young people concerts for maybe um, old people sick people uh, uh, imprisoned people um, people who can who see these uh, opportunities to actually make a difference by presenting music um, and making that into something important um, for for people who who maybe didn't even know that they needed that. I think um, if you have that kind of gift, then I believe that one might be actually quite okay, um, even if the. Uh, the more heavy institutions start having problems because of funding and and things. Then I think because because I I cannot see that we will ever be able to do without art and without music. Although um, uh, orchestras have been closing down some places and uh, and even. For orchestral musicians, um, uh, having a, a, a permanent position is not uh, absolutely sure forever, of course. But still, in general, um, uh, those kind of jobs are as close to safety as you normally get uh, in our profession. And of course, also teaching is, is something that feels rather stable. So for me, I'm quite lucky. But I think um, for future musicians, um if if one has the gift to to and the creativity to see how one could make projects happen uh, that is not necessarily linked to those huge um classical music um, um organizations but but maybe a little bit more of this kind of uh, being a little bit of a cultural um, guerrilla warrior um, then I think um, uh, one has a huge advantage because one gets more flexible. And if if one has good projects, I think one can actually manage to meet people um, who can benefit a lot and have uh, get a lot of comfort and uh, 
wonderful experiences from classical music, maybe even without knowing that this is what they need. And I think to to have the the, the talent and the creativity to to find venues and and people that you can actually make into your own audience. Um, um, that, that that I think is the greatest um, greatest future in our profession right now, because I, I I still think and I still hope that the big wonderful symphony orchestras will survive and also the great chamber orchestras, um, but I think maybe we will not have as many of them, and maybe there will be uh, possibilities and a, a big market for um, musicians. Um, even on other scenes, and I'm not particularly gifted in in as a musical entrepreneur, so I don't I don't know what all the answers are. But I know that some people um, who who chose not to become orchestral musicians or are not big soloists, they still live great lives and make a big difference for a lot of people because they they see the possibilities of of making their art. Uh, heard and experienced um, uh, without actually having the the infrastructure to do so in place before they start. So I think if you have those if you have those skills, apart from of course you need to be a good musician, but um, but to to be able to see possibilities where there aren't any possibilities today, that I think would be the greatest uh, greatest possible future for a classical musician. Though. No. Thank you for listening for this exciting part of interview with Colbjorn Holte. I will meet you in our next part of interview with Colbjorn in one week. Bye.